Welcome to Fireside with VoxGig, a podcast for professional and aspiring public speakers. I'm your host, Richard Roger, the founder of VoxGig.com, an online community for speakers and event professionals. We're here to help you get the most out of speaking, organizing, exhibiting, and attending. In each episode, we sit down for an intimate fireside chat with people in the public speaking community to learn how they have mastered the art of getting up on stage and speaking in front of an audience. If you're an aspiring speaker or just want to improve your onstage performance, this podcast will help you learn from some of the most accomplished and interesting professional conference speakers. And finally, before we begin, a quick shout out and thank you to simplecast.com, first and last word in podcasts, who have kindly come on board as our first ever sponsor. In this podcast, I talk to Daniela Craigan. We talk about how to compose the right structure for a technical talk, how to avoid just having a list of facts and a really boring, plodding step one, step two, step three slides, how to take personal anecdotes, how to take changes to the way that you give your talk and iterate on your talk so you can improve it every time you give the same presentation. It's really, really practical, absolutely amazing. The spirit of improvement is something that really comes through in Danielle's approach. And it was an absolute joy to talk to her. Really hope you enjoy this podcast. Danielle, welcome to the Fireside with Box Gig podcast. It is fabulous to have you on here today. Thank you. I'm very excited to be here. Awesome. So I'm going to start, I'm going to put it right to you, right at the start. Right. So you claim that uh, storytelling is important. And I'm a technical person and I've given many a technical talk and they're bloody boring. And it's just one technical fact after another, or lists of things, or ways of doing something. Now, how on earth do I turn a set of facts into a story? I think a great place to start is to actually think of it as examples, really human examples, rather than story. Because when I talk to my clients about story, they tend to think of it in the sense of like that capital S, mm. that really big story with an arc like we might have in a movie or a book. And it doesn't need to be that. And I don't recommend people start there. I recommend actually thinking of something as an example, but that takes storytelling techniques and applies it. So and do you mean thinking, stuff that happened personally or? Yeah, you can practice with stuff that happened personally, but it's also really easy to do in a project sense. Okay. So when I get people to like to contribute, like what do you actually know about story? People know way more than they think they do because they may, for example, have read stories to their kids or they've been told story has a beginning, a middle and an end from school. So we'll pull what knowledge we have about story. We'll think, okay, if it's just an event or a series of events, what's one event that we can zoom in on? Like if it's technical, what's one particular moment we want to zoom in on? Whether it's maybe when you released a particular product and the bug report started coming in, whether it's when you had to make a particular decision, let's just zoom in on one moment and think about that as an event that could be interesting to share with other people. So it's not just conceptual. So we can visualize you, we can place you. And let's just use storytelling techniques there. Let's think about what the where of it was. Let's think about the when, like when did it happen? Was it that Friday night, like last minute rush? Or were you like bright eyed on a Monday morning, ready for it to go out and be perfect? Let's just think about like the where and the when and what details might bring it to life. Because that's really the essence of storytelling, placing us. And then we can start to think how to shape it. But I really recommend starting small so that people get that taste of what it's like to make it human. The people who come to you looking for help with speaking and with their talks, 
do you end up in a situation where you, you sort of have to politely say, well, these 20 slides are going to have to be redone completely? Or do they come to you before that point? Uh, it depends. Usually people come for coaching. There's a number of scenarios, but a really common one is when something has gone wrong oh, and they know right. it's not working as well as they need to. And in that case, we'll do a review. And quite commonly, I will see a slide deck that's absolutely stuffed. I've seen up to like 56 slides for a 20-minute talk. Wow. So we will go back and strip those out because there's a lack of clarity if we're needing that many slides. But sometimes speakers will come fresh and they'll be like, I want to challenge myself. I want to make a new talk. What do you recommend? And we'll actually start by mapping out the talk just on one page first without any slides at all. So if they had to give it without the slides, what would it be? And then absolutely, we can add the slides back in. Perfect to do so. What interests me is the level of support people get Hmm. for this activity, because I ended up as a, a speaker because my boss gave me a kick up bum and said, go speak. <laughs> I didn't really have much choice about it if I wanted to, to feed my family. Without any real support, I suppose a very small bit of moral encouragement, perhaps. Are we seeing these days that companies understand this is part of the training curriculum for their staff? Is there more support now or is it still the case that people have to get out their own wallets? Yeah, I'm sure there's a variety, but I know for myself as a coach that I do work with companies who are incredibly supportive. Okay. Yeah. That's so good to hear. one of the companies I work with, yeah, who's a remote and distributed um, company, they really prioritize the speaker development. That's great to hear. So yeah. for them, I offer group coaching. Uh, there's one to ones. We do specific speaker challenges where everyone has like a pack of 15 new challenges and we'll share tips in the Slack channel. It really builds a community. Um, so a huge support, not just from higher up in the company, but from right across the board in terms of providing that feedback and rehearsal. And that's great to hear. And I, I suppose this would be a technical company. So, I mean, having worked in technical companies myself, my, my immediate thought is, is that effort or that funding led from the HR side of things? Or is it the CTO? Is, is it the technical department of the company that's putting their money where their mouth is? Or, or? Yeah, interesting. Um, I've seen a mix. The example that I just spoke about, it didn't actually start at HR, but it's now migrated through to HR. It started right. with one super passionate individual who both wanted help for their leadership team and also for members of their team that they saw were struggling. So they really campaigned for it, brought it in. And that was great because it was almost a chance to make it like a pilot and prove the worth of it. And now as it's built and built and built and gone out throughout the whole of the company, it's now company-wide. Now it is being managed within HR still within other interested parties. Yeah, well, let's hope it becomes sort of par for the course. Let's, uh, I mean, let's hope it becomes a sort of standard thing because it is, it is such an important skill. And it's very unfair. Yeah. It's very unfair to people who have some background in it. I mean, I, I, I would have done drama and that sort of thing as a teenager. Yeah. I wasn't entire, entirely unfamiliar with getting up on stage and pro- probably why I was picked because I was kind of a safe pair of hands. But I, I found in my career that being able to get up on stage and speak got me promoted. And if you, you don't have that skill, you're, you're left behind. 100%. And I, as a coach, I have a massive commitment to inclusion and diversity in yeah. all yeah. those different aspects. So that's one of the things that I work very hard with companies on and say, if you just leave it to your naturally most gregarious speakers or the people like myself who've done drama or debate society, you're really limiting and a fantastic knowledge and skills that can be shared and you're limiting the range of voices that we hear from and it's completely unnecessary because it's absolutely a skill set and I know what that feels like I was one of those lucky ones that did get to do drama and debate club and develop their skills and strengths 
But if we don't naturally have them and no one teaches us to them and shows them and breaks it down as a skill set, we don't get any better. The same way that I wasn't naturally good at hockey or netball and didn't get the support and ended up not being in any teams and being yeah, rubbish. I think we're, I think we're <laughs> so, kindred spirits that way. <laughs> but the thing is, it totally is a skill set. That's why I'm so passionate about the work that I do because I'm... Um, I don't, I don't prioritize working with professional speakers. I prioritize people who have really good ideas and knowledge to share that we can all benefit from. And then the public speaking is a skill set that wraps around that. Yeah. And it's, it's a way, isn't it, for tech companies, especially. And uh, diversity issues in tech are, are well known and, and continue to be just an ongoing, huge, huge problem. This particular issue is, is one that's dear to my heart as well. It's a specific practical way that companies can help, I think. Absolutely. But I do see really positive signs within this space. So, for example, I've just recently been asked to um, design with the cohort a speaker program that's just for LGBTQ plus people within the tech space. And we're going to have our own separate speaker program for that. So I do see really positive signs um, and it's much needed. Oh, absolutely. At least on the, on, the, on the positive side, a lot of the conferences now really pay attention to this stuff. They do and they don't. I still, I, oh, I suppose, massive yeah, I improvement <laughs> and I still regularly email people about their lineups just to say, is this going, like I see when your conference is happening, I see your current lineup. Are we going to do something different between now, now and then? And have you thought about supporting speakers? Because right now it's in no way representative. Yeah, it is. You're, you're right. There's still, <laughs> there's still, there's still a long road to go. The quality of the talks that people can give is a is a, is a big part of that. You know, just sort of if you speak to conference organizers, uh, even ones that want to increase the diversity of their their speaking panels and lineups, you know, you get this complaint that well, that that's all very well, but I need to sell tickets and I need the best speakers. Mm. So helping solve the quality pipeline issue. Is an important practical way, I guess, to, to help make that happen. It's one way. And I also think it can come down to the network of the conference organizers because I see such a pool of speakers and I see such talent. And then I also I work with lots of different conference organizers and I see them pull from their existing network and then known. Yeah, because it's easy. What's in their sphere. And I understand why, because like you say, they want it to be trusted. They want the tickets to sell. But often when I'm working with conference organizers, I will say, you know, who do, who do you follow on Twitter? Like whose books do you read? Who do you know about? Because your network is also limiting you. Yeah. Okay. So th this is uh, this is actually interesting because we one of the things that we do is we help speakers find the right conferences to apply to that are mm. running CFPs and that sort of stuff. But what's yeah. frustrating is there's quite a significant number of conferences. And I mean, we're, we're not talking five or 10 percent. We're, we're talking close to half who basically run on an invite-only basis. Exactly. Is it the case, and this is just, this is just sort of going through my head right now while, yeah. while we're speaking about it. I mean, is it the case that conferences should really be running more formal corporate papers processes and the invite-only system has seen its day, perhaps? I don't know in terms of human nature, but certainly what yeah. I advocate for is that we move away from invite-only and that there is a very transparent process for application. Um, because again, I also think it's very frustrating for speakers when the process isn't transparent and they apply in good faith. And actually those spots have been filled by people that are already known uh, to the conference organizers. And I, I see this behind the scenes all the time. So it's how can we have a really transparent process? And there are conferences that have really worked on this, that have really worked on having 
applications where we don't even see the person's name yeah. in the first round. Yeah. And so is, there is lots yeah. of good practice that we can all be sharing. Um, but one, one really positive thing, though, is that also if we're looking at more contributions from speakers remotely, that also opens up things internationally for people. And it also cuts down costs for speakers who, um, you know, not everyone can pay their own way to a conference and still no, no. that don't pay uh, expenses and don't pay speaking fees. So you do see a lot of people do, um, you know, have to have scholarship support now and that sort of thing, which is great as well. Which is only to be encouraged. Okay. Let's go back to the start, though, and, and talk about the structure of talks. So mm. when I started giving technical talks, they were very much plodding along one, two, three. You know, again, this is just going through this kind of list of facts. Yeah. And then I kind of graduated to structuring them around personal stories. But again, mm. again that was very hard to figure out how do you match the technical information with an anecdote? Yeah. And I kind of got to the point where when I approach it now, I'm trying to create a sort of narrative arc. I'm trying to create a, a, a journey, mm. which is illustrated perhaps by personal stories, but yeah. annotated by the, the facts as well. And really cutting down on the facts and then just providing sort of references to where you can go and lo look up stuff, but just trying to kind of have these key ideas. Mm. How do you approach the structure? This stru I mean, that's just where I've got to, right? Randomly. Yeah. How do you approach the structure? How do you, this idea of how, this question, how do you structure a, a technical communication, a technical talk? Yeah. Well, what I love is that you've moved towards having a narrative arc, having a journey that goes throughout your talk. And that's definitely a place that people can move to. It's only that I don't suggest people start there because it, it, there's a lot of skills tied up in doing that, which is fantastic. But as a place to start, what I really recommend that people do when they're doing a technical talk is that they experiment with sections of their talk. Mm. So they think about their beginning, for example, they think about the first three minutes and think, what would be a great way to hook the audience in? Do I want to do it through a stunning visual or a surprising piece of data or a personal story? Or it could be a very strong statement, a very strong question just getting used to really creating that strong hook at the beginning. And then I recommend people maybe think about, okay, what about the end though? Because sometimes those things, we've stated all the facts and then we end really dryly. What would be a really yeah. interesting way to kind of leave the audience? What but don't do this do? all at the same time, just don't per talk. Yeah. Sort of per, and the reason that I do that with people is because they have day jobs and often they're really, really busy and it can be really overwhelming. I mean, amazing if you have the opportunity to set time aside, really commit time to it. Work yeah, nobody has that. Fantastic. <laughs> if you don't, like, don't just think, oh, it just has to be this way. Like really yeah. work on your, your opening and what that looks like. Work on the end and what that looks like. Encourage yourself like to try out storytelling, maybe with one personal story, like bringing in some of those things, maybe just a snippet of dialogue. You know, one sensory detail, something that you saw or heard that makes it memorable so we can start to picture you. Experiment in those small ways rather than do nothing. And then also realize that actually that, that kind of narrative arc that you talked about, it can go across the whole talk, but it could just be like one project that you speak about. It could be a really simple story structure, like what was the problem, what was the choice, and what was the outcome. That also creates an arc and can be used in a really practical way. Often people are like, yeah, I've got loads of problems I can tell you about in a really technical way. I might want to jump straight to solution, but what actually if I start uh, with choice, yeah. like that brings in the human part, because as soon as we kind of see those choices, we put ourselves in that position, we think, oh, what would I do? 
And when I get speakers to practice this and a speaker stops at the choice, people are like, well, what happened? What happened? Yeah. It does create that forward momentum. Uh, and then that outcome is that like thinking about, okay, what was the resolution? Even if it was seen as a failure or a success, what was the outcome? So getting used to like little mini arcs and realizing that story can be built in those really simple ways. And then once someone feels much more comfortable, amazing to be thinking about your whole talk and the narrative arc and the journey of your whole talk. And just be a little bit overwhelming for people to start there sometimes. Yeah, I, I thought what you've just described, um, especially for the software developers amongst us, is iterative talk development, which exactly, I love. That's fantastic. Exactly. <laughs> right, you're, you're absolutely speaking the right language here. It's, you know, iterate on your talk. Yeah. Um, no, and unit test it in front of audiences. That's totally. And they that's wonderful. really talk about building it in a modular way as well. That's a pathway. Yeah. So that you can, so that also, but what if you build it in a modular way, then you get to experiment with different sections and you get to swap sections in and out and see what happens. And you also get to break up your talk then in terms of rehearsal into those modules. If you know you're only rehearsing your three minute opening, that's all you're working on. That's all you're rehearsing. If you know you're only rehearsing your ending, it means you can fit it during the day. You are much more likely to rehearse it than if you're like, I have to rehearse this 35 minute talk. Yeah. And, and it's important. There's a hidden assumption here that we're both making, yes, which I feel is really important to state, especially for people starting out. It is totally okay to give the same talk multiple times. Oh, for that sure. completely okay. Uh, yeah. Some people feel almost well, guilty about it. No. And the, the only caveat that I would add is that it still needs to be matched to the audience. So I yeah. am 100% for like taking that talk, making it better, trying it out. The only time that I sort of pull speakers up on it is if understandably like through shortage of time they just keep putting that talk in front of the audience as though they're the same audience and they may not be so it does need to still just be tweaked for skill level and interest and relevance to the audience you're right daniel that this it's 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 false to say the same talk no it must be improved each time it must be iterated Uh, yeah exactly and match to the audience and what they you know what's going to be really relevant to them and i know that can be hard to guess but sometimes we do have good information about what that audience might be on that day it isn't very hard to go to the conference website and have have a look at what the (laughs) the sort of focus is um you know and some some of them are more about networking you know the whole way tracks some of them are are more formal and academic Mm. it really isn't that hard no look at the twitter streams (laughs) that will give you a good Exactly. So all of those things. And then the only other thing I say to speakers who are lovely and experienced, but they sometimes then feel like, well, this talk has become really successful. So I kind of feel scared to step away and try out something else. And I do have speakers who come to me as a coach because they've actually ended up like getting sick of their own talk and feeling a bit pigeonholed, that they've got more to speak. Like this was representative of where they were in their career and work three years ago or the book that they wrote three years ago, and it isn't now. So again, it's just sometimes I help them bridge across to yeah. take those new risks too. And sometimes just trying it out in front of a new audience, a different audience, lower the stakes, so they can be still running a successful talk and testing out new material in the same way, you know, a comic might have their really perfected set and they will go somewhere to test out new material. Uh, that is totally true. I'd highly recommend Darrow Breen's book. It's called <laughs> Tickling the English. Amazing. I love Dara. It's very good. Uh, he talks about, the, the, apparently there's all these squalid pubs somewhere in London that you test new material as a comedian. Oh, okay. <laughs> and um, the sort of deal is people get to see these, these high-profile comedians for free, uh, but the material is rubbish because right. they always go to practice at the start of the season. Apparently it's a thing. They, they, and they spend 
quite a bit of time there before we finally see them. Right. Well, speakers could do that. Or one other thing <laughs> that I recommend that they do is actually test out new material in some of the other tracks. So where there's more um, informal breakout sessions or the opportunity to teach something, that's a really good place to try out new material too. So that you yeah, are teaching, yeah. you're providing benefit and you're also testing out new material. And meetups are pretty good as well. They're very informal. Totally, totally. It's a great place to try out new stuff as well. Exactly. I think that's, I mean, I, mean, I think that you're making a good point there, which is um, even if you feel you, you're, you're, you kind of know what you're doing when it comes to speaking at conferences, even if you're doing it a lot, there's always room for improvement. There's always room to refresh. 100%. And what I really recommend people do is they look to other sectors. So if you're feeling really confident and starting to feel like you are one of the sort of top performing speakers in your sector, and look at what speakers are doing in all other sectors. You can look to, you know, if you're very technical, look to design and see what people are doing with their slides and what technology they're using to make things really interactive. If you're someone who's really creative, look to what people are doing in technical talks because it goes the other way too. I work with lots of creators where I'm like, where is your data? Like, where is your proof? Like, we don't just need opinions. So <laughs> always be looking yeah. to other sectors too, like step outside of our own bubble. I've learned so much from watching speakers giving technical talks, as well as I have from people from all other sectors. How did you get into this line of work, actually? As, as... I was working at a university and I was helping them with their engagement strategies. So working with lots of young people, giving lots of presentations mm. myself. And in working with the academics, I just kept having the same experience of having an amazing time with them when I met up for a cup of tea or a cup of coffee. And they were so animated. and so engaging and then I would see that very same person stand up in front of a group of 300 on an open day and present and one a lot of them were really stressed and terrified about doing so and two they really looked like t like 2d versions of themselves who were not seeing their best self it was you know flat and dull and there was just such a disconnect so I started informally working with a lot of the academics on the campus so that they felt better and the audience had a better time too. And then I was like, this is fascinating. I cannot yeah. believe I'm getting to work with people who are scientists and who are most brilliant mathematicians and who know about this really specific area of history. So it lit up every bit of interest in my head in terms of both the content and what they were doing with their delivery. Yeah, it's uh, so. Are you are you sort of self taught then as a as a speaker coach? It, it just so it's just something that sort of I think, happened over a couple of yeah, years. Yeah, um, a lot more than a couple of years. I think in yeah. the same way that lots of us coaches are, it comes from places like theatre. So I trained in yeah. theatre originally. Okay, so you have that. Yeah, I have technical background. background. Yeah. I do. So I trained in classical theatre and trained in the UK, and then trained in lots of other countries, including specializing in physical theatre in Paris. Which wow. was lovely. Okay, so again, that, that sounds me very romantic. <laughs> well, that's where I met my husband. So it was very quite mysterious. Romantic. Okay, wow. Um, but that was great from getting a sense of not just like how the mind works, how the voice works, but also how the body works and how that can help us. And I am also like a very much a systems person, very interested in how we break things down. And I love structure in a literal sense and in a narrative sense. I love books, I love movies, I love architecture. I just want to know how things are made and how we take them apart and how we put them together in awesome ways. So all of that kind of built up to what I now do. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's a diverse skill set, but it's, it's really, really appropriate to this particular problem. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny, you know, it's, it's funny that you mentioned the, the academics because 
a lot of them lecture all the time. You'd think they'd be mm. good at it. You'd think they'd, they'd kind of have this feedback loop where literally every day they could become better speakers. And they uh, they can do. Um, for example, I don't know if you know Adam Grant. He's a, yes, hey, yes. Yeah. And so he's a wonderful example of someone who self-confessed was terrible when he started. He says you know, from the feedback forms that he got, people said how monotonous his voice was and how dull he was, but he actively solicitate, solicited that feedback and gave more and improved and asked for feedback and improved and asked for feedback and improved and now is you know a phenomenal uh, speaker we can see his ted talks yeah but yeah. i don't think uh, all academics ask for that feedback i think some of them are afraid to ask for that feedback and i think some of them um, can be sort of so in the detail and so in their head that actually knowing how to translate that out in a way that doesn't feel like a lecture like we don't like to be lectured as an audience we want to be engaged. We want to be part of the conversation. It can actually be quite a hard translation. Yeah, they're they're kind of yeah they're kind of stuck. It's it's um it's interesting to see the, the diversity within the academic sphere in terms of, mm. of, of the speaking ability. I um because of our work, I I, I do a lot of um, reviewing of, of YouTube videos where people speak. So, yeah. for example, uh, you know. Institutions like the the Oriental Institute in Chicago have yeah. you know these series of talks about you know, ancient Egypt and Middle East and all this sort of thing. And fascinating material if you're if you're into history. And some of the speakers are amazing and fabulous. And then others are, are just so academic and dry. <laughs> you know, it, it, and it doesn't seem to, I don't know, it doesn't seem to correlate with the subject matter. Right. <laughs> the subject right. matter can be absolutely fascinating, but yeah. if the speaker is is boring. And they, again, sometimes work. sometimes they've just found that it's a mode that people go into. And obviously, like talking in this very general way doesn't do justice to all the amazing academics I've met who are fantastic communicators. But some of the ones who struggle, and I had this recently in a workshop, was we like we even looked at, like we went right back to Aristotle, and we looked at like really recent work, like Nancy Duarte's work. Mm. And what a lot of them were really caught up on was they were informing. They were just in informing mode the whole time instead of thinking about, well, actually, how do we persuade? Like they were quite resistant to that thinking, is that like selling? It's like, well, no, like when we have a conversation as a human, not in a really like shiny, horrible way, but we do kind of sell each other on different ideas through our enthusiasm and how we think about the world. We invite people in. You know, we do want to inspire people, but how do we actually do that? It's a word that we throw around. So practically knowing how to do that, again, some of them found quite tricky at first. But as we worked through it, it was like, oh, I absolutely see now how I don't just have to stay in information mode. I don't have to stay in informing mode. I can use these other ways that we connect as humans without feeling like I'm undermining the facts or I'm dumbing things down. Yeah, yeah, because they're they're they've been trained in the scientific method and totally. What you're doing on stage, especially when you when you're just sowing a seed of an idea. Exactly. Yeah. It's different from giving a dissertation. It's a very different thing. Totally. But I, but to be fair, I see this with so many speakers. Like the just a really common issue is trying to put too much into a talk. So I see even I do a lot of work with TEDx events as well and coach TEDx speakers. And obviously the tagline is an idea worth spreading. It's not yeah. six ideas worth spreading. So it's <laughs> yeah. not that other talks can't have more than one idea in. I sit with the TEDx speakers who come from all different backgrounds. What a struggle it is to really zoom in on that core idea. 
so that it then can be you know, brought to life in really interesting, multifaceted ways, rather than trying to do too much. There's a quote that Chris Anderson has, who's the curator of TED, that's overstuffed equals underexplained. Oh, I like that. And again, yeah. I see sometimes with academics that sense that they, they just put so much in and they think if actually that the more, the better, like they're giving value and they're just like corroborating and laying in more facts. It's like people just can't, like you're absolutely overestimating how much an audience can remember. It's not dumbing it down to bring things down to less points that are brought to life in much more interesting ways. So there's breathing space in the talk and we can have visuals and there is room for storytelling and we understand how things connect. We understand the transition instead of feeling like we're just kind of on this never-ending stream of information. Yeah, it's amazing when it works. I ended up going down a particular technical pathway, uh, must, must be about six or seven years ago, on the basis of one meetup talk that I saw given by um, this chap who's he's retired now, uh, but he was still coding. He was in his 60s. Uh, and it was a technical talk, but he did exactly what you've just described, which is focused on one idea and didn't overdo it. But yeah. the talk had enough substance that it was actionable afterwards. Great. And it was based on the personal stories as well, which, is, which, is, which really worked. Fred George is his name, if, oh. <laughs> if you want to YouTube him. I will. Fred Lovely. George, uh, microservices. Um, and I mean, he's not, not like a you know, Tony Robbins style speaker or anything. No. I couldn't understand it sort of chat. Um, but he got the structure right. And I think that's fantastic. because And I'm so glad that you said that as well, because I do think, and this is something I say to all my speakers, is that there is room for all kinds of speakers. Some of my favorite talks, actually, the delivery is quite understated. There's a lovely Sugata Mitri talk. His, um, it's uh, about uh, children like basically teaching themselves to code and use computers just through technology that's that left there without any teaching. But his delivery is very gentle and he doesn't have a lot of hand movements, but it's completely right for him. His structure is fantastic. It's still very engaging. So it's also really good to know that there's room for all kinds of speakers and having a fantastic structure and a speaking style that suits you can bring it to life without having to feel like we need to bound around the stage like Tony Robbins. That works really well for Tony Robbins. I would probably look ludicrous if I tried. No. We leave it. We leave the Tony Robbins to Tony Robbins, I think. Yeah, he does it well. Yeah, this has been uh, absolutely wonderful. Where can people find you on the web? Best place to find me is my website, which is remotespeakercoach.com. From remote there, speaker coach. Okay. Yes, remote speaker coach. And from there, you can find all my links to social. And also, you can get help with, there's a download that will help you with some fun structures if you just want to have a go and test yourself and try sketching out different ideas for a talk. Awesome. Well, there's our actionable point to leave our listeners with. Thank Great. you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Same. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you so much for listening. Just a few things before the embers fade and we wrap up another episode of the Fireside with VoxGig podcast. You can find notes and links from this podcast at voxgig.com slash podcasts. We also publish a weekly newsletter on public speaking, selecting the best advice and techniques from some of the world's greatest speakers, both ancient and modern. Rhetoric is an old and revered art, not especially easy to master, but a skill like any other, and one you can also learn. Visit voxgig.com speakers to subscribe. If you've enjoyed this fireside chat, 
please consider subscribing to our podcast. Please also leave a review that helps us make this podcast even better. If you'd like to contact me directly, please email me, richard at boxgig.com. If you'd like to be counted as a supporter, just let me know and I'll add you to our supporters page. And one final reminder to check out our sponsor, simplecast.com, who helped make this podcast possible. Till next time, remember, take a deep breath, pause, and step forward. Step forward.